through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI radio listener. You are handsome. You're beautiful. You are intelligent. This is Out of the Box. Every Thursday from midday to one, I get into the stories and record collection of one guest. Today, Australian music icon Claire Bowditch. She's been on FBI before. A few times, actually. She's got seven albums, an acting career, a stack of arias, and a Rolling Stone magazine Woman of the Year nod. But in her own life, she's overcome grief that she'd stored away since childhood, found a way to manage anxiety, and embraced life in just about one million ways. Her memoirs, Your Own Kind of Girl, is just out from our good friends Alan and Unwood and Claire. Welcome back to FBI and welcome to Out of the Box. It just feels like home here. feels like home. I walk in the front door of FBI and I'm like, ah. Right? We're back. How many times do you think you've been in the chair? Oh, look, maybe over the years a dozen, if that. Really? You know, it might be less. W- when, when was the first one? Uh, the first one was, so when did you guys open? 2003. And we, <laughs> we indulge in a yep. lot of... Yep. Um, FBI history on Out of the Box. I think it might have been about 2004 that I came in for the first time. Wow. And I was, yeah, I was um, perhaps supporting Art of Fighting, a band who I love. I hope we'll get a chance to chat about them Chat about them a bit later, yeah. But, yeah, it's just a thrill to be back. And it's so fancy in here now with you, you know. Someone's had to put a a bit of design into the the waiting room. Right, right. It looks gorgeous. It was always just like a share house. That's sure, how it felt in here. sure. It's a bunker, but it's a nice bunker. <laughs> it's a great bunker. Uh, Claire, the book is is full of gems, but I've settled on this as the way in. Your old man, your dad was an Olympic athlete. <laughs> yes. What, what 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 for? So I didn't know this for a long long time. Um, I didn't understand why dad had an epée and a foil. You know, two swords hanging in the in the shed, along with um, all the old car parts and the bits of God knows what, you know, the freezer, the deep freeze, etc. Um, but there was a tracksuit in my dad's cupboard. I used to go in there rummaging around for a bit of peanut brittle, which I say in, in the book was always quite an odd thing for a man with false teeth to enjoy, but he loved it. And there was this this tracksuit in there that said Tokyo 1964. It was a green and gold tracksuit. And my brother, I knew that my dad was a fencer, but I thought, and this will sound terribly naive because it was, I thought a fencer was someone who actually built fences. <laughs> and it took my brother James Fair to enough. explain to me, no, the the, um, the tracksuit and the things hanging up in the shed are connected. So by the time I really met dad, he was a you know family law solicitor with a big original hipster beard. And um, <laughs> I couldn't imagine him being an athlete. Was the fencing a family secret? Was it kept from you deliberately or? I don't think so. I think <laughs> life was never thought rolling. to bring it up, right? <laughs> I was the youngest of five and life was pretty busy by the time I came in, I think. And you, you know, you learn these stories by osmosis, but because he still, he wasn't practicing fencing then, I just, uh, I just didn't know. I was what, what quite was thrilled it? to find out I was the daughter of a bona fide champion. <laughs> what was it like having a lawyer for a dad, especially the kind of lawyer that your father was? He wasn't just any sort of corporate <laughs> stooge. Well, look, when I remember watching The Castle and um, Danny DeNudo, the the <laughs> puts lawyers in very good That's light. Right. That film. <laughs> Or some. So Dad started off very much a working class um, um, family law solicitor who would dictate his stories into a f- dictaphone and then turn around and play them back and type them himself. You know, um, he worked really hard, and by the time I was in primary school, he was admitted to the bar, which again was just for me this idea of ah. Oh, they're hanging out at a bar. Like I had a physical idea of what it meant to be admitted to the bar and it was quite a pleasurable one. It's more like rock and roll than anything else. Um, but in between he did all sorts of interesting projects including, you know, um, living on Nauru, marrying my mum on Nauru and starting his family there and helping them write their their constitution along with a, a couple of other lawyers and he just had a really interesting career. Were you raised in a religious household? Deeply, deeply, deeply. And I think we were fortunate to have the what I think of as the best parts of religion, which is we were Catholic. Um, we were, you know, mum was quite bohemian actually because she was from Amsterdam, but she had faith and I think faith is a handy thing. And 
she had um, we had these anchor points. She was very focused on love, on the ideas of forgiveness, on um, kindness, service, you know, um, social justice. So that those aspects of it were actually really great when I look back and I look back on the framework that it gave our family when we hit tough times. Now, I don't have my mother's faith in the same way. I would absolutely love to believe in God the way she does because it gives her such a anchoring to this day. But that is the environment I grew up in. And I didn't really even realise how religious we were until I was 15 and I left the Catholic girls' school and I went to, <clears throat> excuse me, I went to an alternative progressive school called Press Hill, which... Like I said, my mum must have had Bohemian Bones because she let me go there. And there I met my best mate, Deepa, and she came over for the first time. We thought we'd start a band together. We were singing together a lot. And she walked through the front door of my house and went, holy fuck, you didn't tell me you were this religious. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean, mate? And she said, well, there's a holy water font in your hallway and there's like a child-sized statue of Mary and Jesus in the front window. But what do you do with a holy water font when it's... <laughs> Give me some little blessing on the way in, my friend, Mm, and on the way out. So there was that, but around this time, the household was always really busy too. Um, And my sister Anna was working as a as a model. She'd hate me to say that because she's actually a photographer. She took the photograph on the front of the book and on the inside, Um, the front ones from when I was a kid. I'm in my bathing suit, looking pretty pleased with myself. Um, She started bringing home music. Um, music from Japan and that she brought home this guy I'd never heard of before called Donny Hathaway and you know we had to order in this CD from from Japan she's heard this music overseas and we waited for the CD to arrive and it finally did and it became a seminal CD in my life one of the most important I guess pieces of music that I still play Many days of the week today. Well, it would, it would be irresponsible not to play some now. What track <laughs> What track do you want to choose off that CD? Well, the, the CD is Donny Hathaway Live, and you could pretty much just dip in anywhere you like. Um, but one of the tracks that I really love that gets me going, like if I wake up and I've got a big day ahead or if I'm about to go out with mates and I need to get revved up, Everything is Everything by Donny Hathaway. The feeling in that room... I mean, this is what, this is church, really, this, this recording.
That's Everything is Everything brought in uh, today by uh, Claire Burditch. That's a Donny Hathaway classic soul music here on FBI Radio. This show is out of the box. Claire, we were talking briefly on air about um, how beautiful soul music is. And it's one of the most bizarre stories is now Australia has become somewhat recognized for it internationally through these boys from Victoria, the Teskey brothers. And you come into their story somewhere. Well, look, I'm on tour at the moment. I do. I'm on tour at the moment. And I feel very lucky to have this story to tell you. Um, Along with me on this leg of the tour is one of my sons who's called Elijah. And, and Elijah is um, a twin. And he was born um, around the time we were making the, you know, in, he was born in between the albums, The Moon Looked On and Modern Day Addiction. So he's 12 years old. So all those years ago, um, I had an incredible midwife called Jenny Teskey. And I'd go to her house uh, most weeks and I'd hang out. And the glorious thing was she had these sons who were really great musicians and they'd be jamming in the shed. And I, um, I remember saying to her, Jenny, they are really talented. Like they've got this, you know, there's a good feeling when I hear those mu- that music. And I was just in the room next door. And I said, call me in a couple of years, you know, if you if you ever need some, you want to have a chat about it. And she, she did call. We ha- had a great chat, actually. Um, and she said, yeah, they're ready to, to put some stuff out there. And I was like, two thumbs up. Excellent. They're going to be amazing. Well, lo and behold, um, this woman who, who who was the midwife to my child and also coincidentally the midwife to the Hemsworth brothers, was um, she, she literally the, delivered, uh, delivered Thor. Who uh, Josh Teskey is often accused of looking like. Yeah, so it's just right. a big circle. So of- bizarre. <laughs> but they... Um, they are these. Ex- they've become these exceptional, you know, um, brilliant music makers. I couldn't be. It's not pride because, I, you know, I think they should be enormously proud of themselves, and I feel really excited every time I get to see them play live. Just one degree of separation from everyone in the world of Australian music, then. That yeah, they are pretty much Kevin Bacon. Claire, um, what did uh, what did your sister? Rowena begin experiencing when she was just about five years old? So I'm one of five and I am the youngest. We're all 18 months apart. Um, And our life had been pretty settled. You know, I explained before a little about my dad and my mum and we had a dog and my parents had just, they were living the quarter acre dream. They just sort of started building their first home um, in a beachside suburb down Melbourne Way um, called Sandringham. And Rowie was in grade prep. We we shared a room and Rowie was a very funny, very cheeky, husky-voiced um, young woman. And she started to have difficulty eating. Um, she started having unusual difficulty with severe dehydration. She couldn't keep food down. And she entered what many of you will know because of your own family experience, um, that that quite horrific ping pong trying to get a diagnosis when something is clearly exceptionally wrong but nobody can quite find a name for it so that began really what was a transition for our family that um, when we went from being a pretty I would call you know I don't know what normal is but we were pretty normal to uh, never being normal again and that was because Rowena was very very ill it turns out what were your parents told when you were trying to get a diagnosis well at first they were told that um, it was something mild and unusual. They thought it perhaps was a virus. Rowena started needing to go into hospital to be rehydrated. But the the symptoms were baffling. There was a rotating roster of very baffling symptoms, difficulty seeing, a, a clumsiness, inability to eat, loss of appetite, and then it would all go back to normal again. Um, and they went to every, <coughs> excuse me, every specialist, every... GP, anyone who had half an idea of what might be happening. But to get this in context, there just wasn't, there weren't the machines in those days to see inside kids' bodies or anyone's bodies. There were no MRI machines and x-rays were not going to do it. So it was difficult. At one point it was, you know, in a desperate attempt to find some answers that was suggested that perhaps there was a psychosomatic element to the illness. Um, and that was a very painful experience for my parents who knew that wasn't the case, but were willing to try anything. What, what would a psychiatrist say? 
Well, it was more that the while they were doing the series of tests, the um, the paediatrician at a loss said, "Look, we have to try all options." And um, Rowena was assessed by a psychiatrist, and it was you know they had they tried all sorts of different techniques to work out you know they, it was clear she was bright, she was an honest kid, she was definitely physically unwell. Um, it seems sort of nuts in retrospect that that could even have been considered, but I felt I think they felt they had to try every avenue, um, and it became pretty clear pretty quickly that it was not a psychiatric or psychological illness, that it was physical. And that became very definite when Rowena was... um, She was unable to breathe. She was put on life support and she became a paraplegic at that stage. So it was very, very difficult and it's difficult for me to talk about it. It's the reason why it took so many years to write the book because I don't... You know, this is the hardest part of Rowena's life. It was... She had a full life. She lived for two more years miraculously in the children's even though she couldn't move her body and was severely limited um, she could move her head she could talk she could sing she could whisper she could laugh and she did you know she lived well um, but it was very difficult knowing that she was going to die how how did you sustain a relationship with her during that period were were you able to oh yeah god i was in there every day you know skipping and and laughing and jumping around her bed but one of the things that that starts to build in in a child in grief you know grief makes vessels of us and this was you don't know where to put your love because you're not sure if you're doing the right thing you know i wasn't sure as a kid was i was there something i could do that would make her well again you know it's an, and it seems a crazy thought but anyone who's experienced acute grief or trauma will understand that you you do have unusual thoughts in order to try and you know imagine in this age of magical thinking that there's something you could do to make it all better so one of the things that I liked to do and that my my parents encouraged me to do because the focus was very much on on love and again this is where faith came into play it was bloody handy and she always had a nurse with her. She was sort of seen as a mascot of the ward because she um, lived so long in there, which was incredibly unusual. So I used to make her little tapes because there were no portable life support machines. So I'd make her little tapes, as would my other siblings. And all my stories in this arena are shared stories. I just speak from my perspective and from what I remember. Um, but, yeah, I think this is how my identity as a songwriter was formed. I would listen back to those tapes afterwards, singing about the world around us and dogs and um, trying to cheer her up and make her laugh. And she did the same with me, really. She really was still my very alive, very gorgeous, very cheeky, very bossy big sister, actually. Um, And it didn't occur to me until decades later that she was quadriplegic, that she couldn't move. It's so bizarre to say that out loud, but she's always been so alive to me. She's always been... Um, yeah, she's always been my, my, even though it's, it's been a long time, you know, decades and decades, she still feels very real to me. Can I ask you about the day that she died? Yes. What would you like to ask me? Where were you? I went to, um, this is a story that I tell in the book, um, and you can hear in my telling of it that... I tell everything that I remember, but there are blank spots throughout the day. And again, you know, it's this is the most tragic and sad bit of my sister's life, but this is not her life. And I, 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 I talk about it because it allows me to talk about dignity and allows me to talk about the long tail of grief and what we do with our grief. And I'm not sure I could have written songs or would have really needed to or, you know, have lived the life I live without this restlessness that comes from this loss of a loved one and I think many people feel alone in that so I like to be able to talk about it because I think it's part of it you know part of a human experience but it's difficult so um, on the day she passed away I was at um, I was at I was watching um, Peter and the Wolf Prokofiev um, and we went to the hospital and we're given the news I think that's probably all I can say out loud without weeping on your radio show. But I, um, it's it's a funny old thing. I remember that day very well. Let's 
play some music. Wh- what do we want to go to for that? Um, look, there is this guy who's always cheered me up. Uh, <laughs> and he's not with us anymore either, unfortunately. But when he was here, he had a really big impact on me. I wondered always, you know, what was I going to do with my life? I knew I wanted to make songs, but it was difficult to understand how I could have this grief experience and this um, voice in my head that told me I was always told me I was too big to be a songwriter, which doesn't really logically make sense. But it's one of the stories I picked up from society about um, I feel too much. I am too, you know, I'm too big. I'm too much. I should keep my feelings to myself, etc. But one day, magically, I was working at the call center. I went and bought a CD. Um, so it's the 90s. At a CD store, a record store, a guy called Jeff Buckley. Um, he had an album that was called Grace. And when I bought it, the guy at the record store called Gaslight said, hey, guess what? He's in town and he's going to play a little gig tonight. Or I think it was tonight or the next night in store. Would you like to come and get a free ticket with the CD? So I said, cool, I'll show up. So I did and it changed my life seeing this kid play, this guy called Jeff Buckley play live in a room of 40 people and candelabras and... I thought, hey, it's okay to, um, to, yeah, to have our hearts on display. You can be funny and playful and also let people know what you feel. So I want to play this next song. I like it particularly because it's a Nina Simone song that Jeff Buckley covered. And if you think about it, there aren't that many guys who cover women's songs. And Jeff is one of them. So Lilac Wine from Jeff Buckley. I lost myself. On a cool, damp night I gave myself in that misty light Was hypnotized by a strange delight On the lilac tree I made wine from the lilac tree Put my heart in its recipe Makes me see what I want to see be what I want to be When I think more than I want to think I do things I never should do I drink much more than I ought to drink Because it brings me back you
beautiful voice of Jeff Buckley there, that classic influential album, Grace, the song Lilac Wine, originally by Nina Simone, a whole lot of passion in one song, brought in today to FBI Radio by Claire Bowditch. I love him so much. I love him. Every time I hear that song, my little childhood heart still goes, ba-bing. It's a lot in it. I came on my first road trip because of Jeff. I followed him up here um, to see him play at the Emerald Theatre. To see him play at the Enmore. Yeah. And then finally you met him as well. I did. Very brief. Look, I don't want to build it up too much, you guys. But yes, that's, <laughs> he's really the only famous person I talk about in my book. How did you go at school, Claire? Look, I was kicking goals in primary school. <laughs> <laughs> because I'd worked out that, um, you know, I, I knew that I had a, I was big and strong. And I had this story in my head sort of intertwined with being... I mentioned it before, you know, perhaps being too big and girls weren't supposed to be big and all those stories that we pick up in society and that other little boys and girls might tell you as we're being teased in the schoolyard. So I had a pretty, you know, I had good friends, but I felt always a bit other and I found my way through that by, look, developing a comic sensibility. I think the anxious mind and the comic mind are often quite... Um, there's some relationship there. And uh, I realised that if I could make fun of myself and make people laugh, it felt more powerful than sort of being called names. So, How would you do that? Look, um, I would do impersonations of Miss Piggy. hey I'd do all that. I sort of looked around for, um, you know, um, there were about three or four uh, bigger kids in the world in public culture in those days really and one was um chunk from the goons and goonies sorry and um um i would just sort of play with uh, this idea of it being comical to have the body that i had and i you know when the boys called me names the nickname i had was fatty boomba which was a good one um i would make munching sounds and go towards them yum 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 and I just had this way of making people laugh then and using my body for comedy but it did feel sort of slightly like I was betraying myself half the time and I knew that when did it become apparent was there a moment or a period when it became apparent that that wasn't a sustainable way to deal with those sorts of anxieties yeah that would be way too woke for the kid I was at the time let me tell you all I knew was I wanted to fit in and I wanted to be normal and I equated at some point, if I could just get my body size to be smaller, I might be more normal. And guess what? It worked, which is so curious still to me. At 10 years old, I told my mum, I've had enough of being fat. Put me on the fir- put me on a diet, please. And she said, but you're an Amazon, you're a peach, you know. But she started to be concerned because she saw how I was... Um, how the world treated people who were bigger. I was a kid who, you know, there was no online shopping. There were no, I couldn't go and buy my size clothes in normal kids' stores. Um, I had to go to women's stores. I dressed like a little nonna. And um, I wanted the freedom of choosing the bubble skirts and choosing the the fun clothes. So, What, what does a dietitian do for a 10-year-old? Well, this was a fairly famous diet doctor, a GP. Um, I went into the office with him uh he was recommended by a family friend 
And again, you know, it's important to say now we have health frameworks like health at every size. We have body positivity, which was a burgeoning political movement at the time, but it was pretty central to, you know, America. We didn't know, we didn't have very much language. We didn't have Susie Orbach's fat as a feminist issue in bookstores in Australia easily, you know, at reach. So there was no language around health and body size. So health basically if you were fat it was assumed you were unhealthy and you know it was assumed that by GPs that it was healthy that you lose weight so the doctor weighed and measured me and he pointed to a chart that said that I was this thing called obese and I knew that that was a bad thing I was 10 years old didn't know much else but I knew that was not what I wanted to be and he said listen here's the drill he put me on quite an extreme um low carb, low fat, low everything. You know, if you've been on a diet and chances are there's a good chance that you have because many of us have and we don't talk about it terribly much. Um, It worked, basically. You know, we say diets don't work. Well, this first diet worked in terms of I lost a lot of weight and I came back the thin kid to school. But it didn't work in every other (laughs) single way. I was a growing body and suddenly I couldn't, you know, I needed a new school uniform. People didn't recognize me. Um, I was told I was beautiful for the first time. I was asked out for the first time. The world changed. And although as a human being, it was wonderful to get that attention and affection and feel like I mattered. And I liked that feeling. There was another part of me that felt it was so wrong. And that became a wrestle inside me. That how how old were you when you'd gone back to school after that? I was 10. So it was, you were it, still was, 10. it was grade four to grade five, I think, at, you know, 10, 11. How, how did this play out in high school? Well, what it meant was the story in my head or the voice in my head, which I now realize is the survival brain, the lower brain, you know, is effectively, um, I, I was growing and I wish I should have been eating more than I was. And I was trying to control this because I was terrified of going back to being the fat kid. Um, it meant that I went on a rotating, you know, um, series of of diets that, you know, it's almost comical if you sort of read the list. But the, the problem was if I'd spoken about this, maybe someone could have helped me, but I didn't. I wanted it to be not a fuss this time. I'd noticed that my body was putting on weight again. I didn't realize that as a young woman, that's what your body's supposed to do. Otherwise, you don't trigger the cascade of hormones that allows you to have your first period. So you're supposed to put on weight as you're going growing into puberty but it just made me panic so I think this is when anxiety you know I can look back and go oh yeah of course I was trying to manage my anxiety around my body I'd been told my insides count by my parents but the world was telling me my outsides count and both were true so I just went on a series of really dumb attempts to control my weight which you know, worked to varying degrees. And this cycle repeated itself again. When I was thin, the world assumed I was winning. And when I was bigger, there was just crickets, just silence. And it became a lonely place to be. How bad did it get? I mean, this is something that obviously continued through after high school as well, which you write about. Where where were you at its lowest? Where did that cycle take you? Look, at its lowest, it took me to what I would later write about in Your Own Kind of Girl, which is an experience I recovered from but was a horrific, you know, genuine, authentic nervous breakdown at the age of 21 when I was overseas. Um, I can say that quite openly out loud now because I know that one, probably one in four of you and actually more likely one in two of you will experience something akin to an acute episode of mental health at some point in your life. For me, it was a weather pattern that came in um, and was at its most difficult at 21. And then I learned to manage it. I learned how to get through such an experience and how to use my brain for the better. But there was a period at 15 where it flared, um, which is when I went to my first psychologist and just thought, why aren't I losing weight? (laughs) I still thought that the problem was with my weight. I had no concept that I was using food and diets as metaphors for hope. What do you mean by that? So we all love a hero's journey. And for me, what I'd experienced as a kid was that I brought great joy to people when I lost weight. And I wanted to be someone who brought joy and I wanted to matter at the same time. So I was trapped in this knowing it was superficial, but feeling the real experience of being given the attention. It's like, you know, winning an award or, you know, and I, I 
do not judge myself for this. So it's, I think this is a normal, natural part of wanting to be a human who belongs. But um, I had no idea that actually I needed something hopeful to live for too. You know, I still had a lot of unresolved grief inside me and a lot of complicated feelings. I hadn't really discovered my songwriting yet or ways to tell the truth. I was still trying to pretend I was normal. And the idea of dieting gave me the concept that maybe when I, when I lost weight again, I would feel different. And yet when I get thin, all I would feel was scared and sort of need to eat again and put the weight back on. So I didn't understand my physiology, my brain, epigenetics, or any of those things that now put that experience into context. So before we get a bit of a sense of that, let's play another song. What do we, what do we go to now, Claire? Okay, let's have a little look. Ah, oh. All right. Now, um, during that time, I'm just thinking now, during that time, when I finally said to mum, there's something wrong with me, I, I can't work out why I can't lose the weight and keep it off. And um, then, you know, at the time it was quite unusual to go and see a therapist. But I went and saw this therapist and my, my and she was an eating disorder specialist. But I still thought in my childhood mind that maybe I would just be given the diet at some point and then I could follow it and we could solve this problem. Um, my mum in the meantime was on a bit of a stealth operation to try and give me some role models of people my own size because I just didn't see them in the, in the um, in popular culture at the time at all. There was no no successful role models my size that what I could a, find. What a wonderful thing for a mum to do. <laughs> yeah, well, she tried really hard. So she got a postcard of an old um, carnival woman standing strong and she put it on the fridge. But she said to me at a certain point, you're going to be your own kind of girl. You don't have to be like other people. I look, let's be honest, I think my mum secretly hoped I would become a nun at some point and <laughs> that didn't happen. Um, but more than that, her rebellious spirit was there. I don't think she would say I am a... Um, you know, I, I don't know how my mum would describe herself, but I think she was very much a feminist and she said to me, you are going to be your own kind of girl. And this song was written as a way, um, it became a song title, Your Own Kind of Girl, later a book title. But this song is an ode to all of you who have wished to be normal and have forgotten where your real power lies. Chocolate chocolate on your mouth Oh, you long to be like the other girls You're not gonna be like another girl Some other girl You've been reading magazines again Comparing your sweet body With 
no regard, no understanding, no real care about the pain they breed. Oh, my hope for you, my darling girl, be brave and build a dream in your own sight. Cause otherwise, you're buying crap that you don't That's Claire Bowditch. Your own kind of girl is the song fittingly brought in today by my guest on Out of the Box, who is also named Claire, Claire Bowditch. Hello, it's me. The author of such a song. And not the first time that a Claire Bowditch song has been played on this show. Clementine Ford earlier in the year. Aww. Yeah. The thing about grief she brought in. I didn't know and that. That was beautiful. in testament to the story of losing her mother prematurely. Mm. What's it like um, knowing that your songs affect people in such a a way, especially when you're exploring things that are so personal, some of which we've Mm. just talked about? Look, I think there has always been, you know, one of the weird long-tail things about childhood grief is that you do want to do something that means something. You hope, um, you know, you hope... There is sometimes this this um, complex set of feelings about why did I live and what am I here to do? And you start asking these philosophical questions early. So I think in my, again, I never spoke about them out loud really because I thought I was crazy for thinking so much. But part of that is you want to, it's a thrill when you do something that you work out that if you can tell the truth about who you are, you're not alone. You know, so for me, it's really emotional to hear that someone like Clem was able to feel less less alone because of a song that I wrote. That's a good feeling. That feels like I'm, you know, feels about as feels a bit better than working at the call centre, um, which had its own pleasures and it was nice to serve customers well, but um, <laughs> solve problems um, as I did when I was a late teen, early twenties. But I think this feels better. How does songwriting? enable you to come to terms with your own grief and your own anxieties? I, I know that sounds like a very simple question, mm-hmm. but there's a lot mm-hmm. in that, and I think it's very specific to your personal journey with music. The, the experience of, of grief and anxiety is like all other experiences of extreme feeling. So you are wondering where they fit in the real world, and you're trying to find places to house them, especially with grief. Something that you loved is no longer here, and where do you put all that love? So for me, songs has been a way of allowing me to find homes for the parts of me that I have annexed out to, you know, Alba Island or the parts of me that would never get to be lived in the real world because um, of all sorts of reasons, you know, because people have passed on or because there were things that um, there are ways I judged myself or otherwise that needed to be processed and in short, songs have given me homes for things that need need homes, for feelings that need homes. So it's, it was a very strong part of my recovery from my um, mental ill health um, season when I was 21. And it's continued to be a really great maintenance sort of activity for me. But more than that, um, it's not only a house for those things, it's also fun. It's really fun. There's so much pleasure for me in singing. And, you know, we all have something that comes easily to us. I know that if we can speak, if you can speak, you can sing. I, that's a, I, I did training in that when I was 20-something years old with Vic Health in Melbourne, and I've been teaching that through my sing-song workshops 
um, Sing Song Show Tom workshops ever since. If you've ever been in my crowd, you know I believe this to be true. If you can speak, you can sing. But for me, this pleasure of singing and playing with song came especially easily. So it's been my balm and it's been my um, joy and it's also brought me the most incredible opportunities getting to chat with you here today going into people's lounge rooms who I don't know and the thought that maybe there's something I'll say or sing that they will recognize is is a brilliant thought but it also you know it helps me feel more connected to the world can we play something for that what do we play for songwriting Claire well um I've been thinking about this. There was a long time where I told myself this story, as I said before, where there wasn't a place for me in songwriting or in music, that it was too ambitious to imagine that I could have a career in that field. And it's with incredible delight that I realised that that just isn't true. And it started to occur to me it wasn't true when I started making music and putting it in the world and technology happened to coincide with um, the advances in technology allowed me to find my audience through things like social media and mailing lists and not necessarily through standard record companies or conforming. I do work with record companies now, but we have a good relationship. Those options weren't available um, in times past. They were very difficult to come across. One of the things that gives me great courage is seeing someone like the lady, the gorgeous lady who used to work at my bar in Melbourne, Northcote Social Club, this bartender called Courtney, who I knew was uh, an enormously talented musician on the side, um, but to to realise that she was not only Courtney, she's Courtney Barnett and she was a punk. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. And to see her playing on Jimmy Fallon and to see that she didn't have to brush her fucking hair to do it um, and that she was able to bring stories from Melbourne to the whole world. It's just given me so much, so much excitement over the years. So I want to play a song by Courtney Barnett, if we may. (laughs) This one's called Avant Gardener. Take it away, Courts.
That's uh, Courtney Barnett there, avant-garde, something of a recent Australian classic brought in to FBI Radio today by Claire Burditch. This show, live on your radio, on podcast as well, is out of the box. Claire, let's bring it up for, for the end of the show. Let, let's... Ch- it's like a TARDIS in this room. Where am I? How much time has gone? It's <laughs> magical. Sorry if we've been in here for hours, you guys. But, oh. yeah, let's let's take it home. Look, I've had a very f- a fortunate one hour. <laughs> um, let's talk a bit about love. Uh, who, 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 who's Marty Brown? <laughs> oh, well, Marty Brown was this guy I met randomly. Uh, he's a drummer and... The way my career in music came about was was really thanks to a fortunate series of coincidences that if, if you're there and you're wondering, where, when am I going to meet my band? I write these songs. What am I going to do with them? That was me at 23. So I was in recovery now from um, my acute period of, of, um, of acute anxiety. I'd worked out what it was that I was going through. I had a name for it. It was called Nervous Suffering was the name that was given to my um, experience. And I found that through reading a book called Self-Help for Your Nerves by Dr. Claire Weeks. And I need to mention that because it was a simple, useful technique that really helped me be able to have the courage to get on with my life. It was just about accepting and not being afraid of the fear. So she's an old-fashioned lady. She's not around anymore, but she's an absolute legend, original gangster of mindfulness. She didn't call it that. She, there was no term for these, you know, complex illnesses we now have. She just called it nervous suffering. So I had her technique and I was writing my songs and I was starting to get brave and I thought, mm, when am I going to meet my my people, you know, and when am I going to have the courage to play these things out loud? So I'm in a chai tent, random chai tent at, at Comfest, a hippie festival. I'm 23, 22, 23. And a guy walks in called John and we start singing together and it works. And he says, let's start a band. And I'm feeling gutsy that night. And I say, okay. So we jam at his place and I bring my half-finished songs and I'm terrified and I'm sweating. And he says, let's be a three-piece because my housemate Marty Brown's a drummer and inducts the tallest guy I've ever seen in my life through the door <laughs> and sits down and starts playing and it works. Marty Brown um, was then my bandmate and my dear friend and my producer and just happened to be a guy whose bones I wanted to jump and it was really awkward because he's a really good friend <laughs> and I thought I don't want to waste this friendship on that. Um, you know, I wanted to be friends with him for life but I adored him. Um, and he went through this bit of a purple patch. I thought maybe he's going to be too busy for me now because he started playing with this band called Art of Fighting. And Art of Fighting were uh, releasing this album called Wires. The year was 2001. So uh, how long did you know um, Marty before you did get together? Oh, uh, look, we... I mean, look, the ins and outs of this are... it's It's... I'd love us to have an agreement together and talk about this in its detail, but here is the the short version. Um, We started playing together when we were 22, 23, and he was the one guy in town who had all of this recording equipment in his room, and he started recording our albums for a band called Red Raku. Um, But it wasn't until we were 26 that we finally admitted our feelings for each other and just went for it. And pretty soon after you're pregnant... Yeah, magically. What did you name your first kid? We named her Asha. Why? Asha was, um, this is a little magical story, but not long after I met Marty, I had this dream that a little angel came to me. And, you know, this is beautiful because I've always been very confused about my faith. It's nice to get a good, clear dream. (laughs) little angel came to me and I had the most amazing time with her. She was a little baby and she said that her name was Asha. And I'd never heard of that name. Um, it, I realised later that it was a Swahili name for hope and life and light. And after we gave birth to our baby girl, Marty reminded me of that dream. We talked about it in between. I told him about it and said, maybe this is Asha. And it was. Let's play one of Marty's to finish this episode of Out of the Box. What art of fighting track do we want to play out with, Claire? I want to play you a beautiful song. Um, that I remember watching Marty and Art of Fighting play at the Corner Hotel. And it was around that time where I thought, oh, God, this is awkward because I really do have some feelings here. And I remember watching him on drums playing this. 
and just allowing myself to imagine for a moment that, my God, what if things worked out for us? So the song is Skeletons and it's brought to you by the legends, Art of Fighting. Well, as every week, enormous thank you to my producers, Bree Jones and Rebecca Merrick, who, who got down and dirty with the research on this week's show. Claire Burditch, thank you so much for being in the studio today. It's been an absolute honour. Thank you so much for having me and thanks for all that you do. podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.